In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. The Christian gospel, my brothers and sisters, stands on its own. So much is this the case that it refuses to submit its claims to any other standards than the person who constitutes the essence of the claim. Who is that? Just look at it the way the world looks at it. Who is that? It's a Galilean carpenter who lived briefly on this earth about 2,000 years ago. And Christians, as far as the world has to see, Christians accept the claims of a Galilean carpenter who lived briefly on this earth 2,000 years ago. Yet Christians do this so naturally, so spontaneously, that they may easily forget how stupendous a claim this is. See, the gospel, and we ourselves in proclaiming it, affirm that the gospel cannot be submitted to any prior concept of truth. The gospel cannot be submitted to any prior concept of truth. First time I read that was maybe a quarter of a century ago, and it rocked me. I wasn't an Orthodox then. It was largely because I saw that that I became an Orthodox. Fyodor Dostoevsky said that if he had to choose between Christ and the truth, and he discovered that they were mutually incompatible, he would choose Christ and abandon the truth. Now, this is a very ironical way of putting it, but it is the claim. That is to say, one does not accept the truth first, and then accept Jesus because he corresponds to the truth. He is not a specific truth a truth within a larger genus called truth. As though two and two is four, and Jesus is the Son of God, and these things are both true, but they're both true because of some prior standard called truth. The gospel eschews, absolutely rejects that claim. The gospel claims, rather, that Jesus Christ is the truth because he is the historical manifestation of the being of God. There is therefore no prior category of truth to which Jesus must submit his claims. Ponder for a moment how completely arrogant that has to seem to the world. And we'll draw some of those inferences this morning. Indeed, there are a good number of inferences to be drawn from this. But today I want to consider only three, all of them having to do with human beings. Let's consider nature, history, and destiny. In fact, that's the way I was going to arrange it earlier this past week when I first designed this sermon. Yet as the week grew on, I saw that that's the wrong order. 
because it begins at the beginning. And the Christian never begins at the beginning. He begins with the end. And in fact, today's gospel forces us to begin with the end. I propose then to reflect on human nature, human history, and human destiny. But I propose to do so in reverse order. To start at the end where today's gospel starts. Let's start with human destiny. One of the last articles of our creed, and the last one that actually pertains to Jesus, is the last judgment. Iterum venturus est, that's the way I learned it. Iterum venturus est judicare. He will come again to judge. John Calvin, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, says, and I believe correctly, that all of the creed hinges on that article. He will come again in glory to judge. He says, everything hangs on that article. And I believe it's absolutely correct. Because all of the creed will stand or fall with that assertion. He will come again in glory to judge. This morning's gospel says that all the nations will be gathered before him. All the nations. I'm presuming that means commonwealths and tribes and things of that sort. Eskimos will be there and Neanderthals and every last tribe of Oceania, Africa. All the Chinese will be there. Begrudgingly toward the end, they'll also bring in the Irish. (laughs) Now think about that. Just think about that. I was teaching, I think, seminary. I think it was seminary I was teaching rather than college. So I was sort of hearing about it. It was coming from the college campuses. They were talking about something called multiculturalism. And I thought, oh, that's wonderful. I thought, this is really great. I, you know, I completely misunderstood what they meant by it. I thought, this is great because that means we're going to start teaching kids Swahili in Chinese in Arabic. This is, this is great. They're going to be multicultural. I always thought this was, a, you know, I, I thought my own exposure to other cultures when I was young was one of the best things one of the best graces God ever gave me in life. I thought, this is great. We're going to have multiculturalism on the campuses. The kids are going to be exposed. They're going to be reading deeply in the Upanishads. They're going to understand the essence of Hinduism. They're going to, uh, they're going to be exposed to Swahili and get to know all the cultures of Africa. They're going to learn Chinese and Arabic. This is marvelous. Then I actually started teaching college, and I found it didn't mean anything like that. It meant almost the opposite. I found that multiculturalism was not being taught in the language departments or the history departments. It was being taught in the behavioral sciences. It was being taught in sociology and cultural anthropology and things like that. And what it meant was that all the cultures are equal 
and that every culture has its own moral and ethical standards, and every culture must be judged within the confines of that culture, under the standards of that culture. So that, for example, if a culture affirms the value of human sacrifice, something that was affirmed clearly by the Carthaginians and is affirmed very much by the Americans and the Western Europeans, if that's the standard of the culture, then no one has a right from outside the culture to step in and say, you shouldn't be doing that. Today's gospel slaps that right upside the head. All the nations will be gathered before him. This wonderful student I had years ago when I was teaching in the community college in Pittsburgh, he was one of the smartest students I ever had. He was in his mid-30s, had had a lot of experience. And he and I were sitting having lunch down in the student cafeteria. And uh, Eric's sitting across from me. He says, you know, Professor Reardon, he says, I think I have, I have the whole thing figured out about the afterlife. I said, oh, really? He said, tell me. He says, says, I've been thinking about this. This is how it works. Whatever you believe you're going to get after you die, that's what you get. I said, explain that to me. He says, well, you know, he says, the good Muslim, he's going to get his... How many virgins it is? I don't know. I lose track of how many you're supposed to get. The idea that I'm going to spend a whole lifetime, however, being really good, and then for all eternity I'll be put in charge of 70 high school girls. It just seems to know. <laughs> that, that just, that just, that's just too much. Uh, you know. That would be my definition of hell. He says, and if you're you're a a Hindu, you get nirvana. And if you're a Buddhist, you may become a bodhisattva. I said, ah, I said, I think I grabbed it. I think I understand now. So say if I'm a, a, see, I'm a Viking. I get to go Valhalla. He says, that's it. And if 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 I'm a Cheyenne, I get to go to the happy hunting grounds. He says, now you got it. I said, you know, Eric, I said, that's a, that's a very interesting theory. He's not a theory, it's a truth. I said, well, okay, truth. I said, I'm, I'm extremely glad to hear it because it, it, it takes a lot of anxiety away from me. I've always been kind of nervous about my religion. And but what you're telling me, I'm going to be okay. You see, my religion is that of Linus. I believe that all the good little children get to go to be with the great pumpkin. (laughs) So I'm going to be, after I die, I'm going to the great pumpkin patch. He said to me, he says, don't be an ass. (laughs) I said, I I thought I was, I thought that's what you were saying. He says, no, no, you got to pick one of the major religions. And I said, you know, I said, well, you know, most of the major religions started out as very minor religions. 
And besides, Eric, who put you in charge? I thought about that over and over again. It's, it's 25 years or so since I had that conversation. Someday I must actually sit down and write about that. You see, because that was multiculturalism run amok. It's what I would call multicultural eschatology. Where God must respect multiculturalism. But in this morning's gospel, all human beings, especially it says all the nations, will be judged by Christian standards. There's no multiculturalism at the last judgment. Every person in every culture will be held to the same standard. And that is the human destiny, and that is the end of history. That, my brothers and sisters, is an essential part of the claim of the gospel. That ultimately, there's only one standard, one standard for everybody. And the great advantage of being a Christian is you know what the standard is. Let's talk then about human history because the judgment comes at the end of human history. Because he is the judge, final judge of history, we should conclude that Jesus Christ is also the one who gives coherent form to all experience of time. I'm not talking about a philosophy of history. I was always from my youth involved in study. I was always intrigued by the study of history. I was still fairly young when I read Vico, for example, which was one of the first efforts. And then reading other philosophies, philosophers of history, Spangler and so forth. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the theology of history. Theology of history. This has become more and more central, at least as I get toward myself, just my own personal life, get toward that scene that's described in today's gospel. You know, when my age, when you already have one foot in the grave and the other eager to follow it, you start to think very eschatologically. I really, I truly... Truly, really lament that St. Augustine has such a bad press in American orthodoxy. It's mainly American, a very bad press. It's almost like he's a dirt, his name is a dirty word. People go to orthodox seminaries and all they learn about are the two or three places where he didn't get it right. And therefore, they're excused from reading the shelves and shelves of books in which he did get it right especially that they're not trained to read that incredible book called The City of God, which gives a theology of history. I won't go further into that question, perhaps at some other time. Augustine sees the secret of history. Why should I see Augustine? The Christian church really does see the secret of history in the history recorded in the Bible. The Bible is the understanding of history because Jesus, as the culmination and climax of history, 
claims to be the fulfillment of biblical history. There's no Jesus apart from Israel. And that's why anti-Semitism is probably a sin surpassed only by blasphemy. Jesus is inseparable from Israel, the choice of Israel. Jesus is the climax and culmination of 2,000 prior years of divine pedagogy recorded in Holy Scripture. That's why there's an absolute uniqueness of the Jews and the universal authority of their canonical literature. Their canonical literature is the norm and standard for the assessment of all history. This characteristic of what I call prophetic historiography. All of these, all of these prophets have great insight into what God is doing in history and have formulated that insight in these incredible books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Twelve, just take the whole Bible for that matter, because all of it is prophetic historiography. That literary historical corpus remains forever the canon of historical understanding. You see, the Hebrew scriptures are canonized in Jesus Christ. The whole canonical process culminates and his person. He and he is the one who makes that body of literature the norm and standard for the understanding of all human history. And that's that we absolutely, as the gospel, we must proclaim that. There's no gospel that is not proclaimed according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15. I declared to you of first importance that which I also received that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was raised again according to the Scriptures. All of the Gospel has as its center, right near Jesus, the Hebrew Bible, the, the Bible of the Jews. Maybe not Hebrew, Greek. I don't worry about that. I'm not worried about the language. I'm talking about the corpus, the canonical corpus, which is defined in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, finally talk about nature. What does this eschatology tell us about human nature? It says that human beings are called to be the brothers and sisters of Christ. Today's gospel doesn't tell us about the brotherhood of man tells us about the brotherhood of Christ. What binds us together is not ultimately that we're all human beings. What ultimately binds us together is that Christ has assumed our humanity. He is the center of our humanity. St. Nicholas Cavasilas said that we were given eyes that we may gaze upon his glory, the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. St. Nicholas Cabezillo says that's ultimately why God gave his eyes. 
Ultimately, why did God give us hands, St. Nicholas asks. Why did God ultimately give us hands? So that we could put forth our hands into the place of the nails and lay them into his pierced side. Everything we have as human beings, what constitutes us as human beings, is geared toward participation in the divine life. Human nature is internally constructed in such a way as to render it capable of this higher calling. A human being who is only a human being and not a child of God is not yet truly a human being. The only way humanity is perfected is by divinization. God-manhood, that's how humanity is perfected. Bogo Shelovyek, the wonderful way the Russians say it. God-man, God-man. We're called to be divinized in Christ. And human nature is not complete until it is divinized. So all human beings are constructed with a view to their becoming children of God, and brothers and sisters of Christ. And this is the reason for the incarnation in which the Son of God so identified himself with every human being that whenever a human being is fed or clothed or cared for, he is clothed and fed and cared for. And this, my brothers and sisters, is the final judgment. That's the standard to which the whole world and all of history will be held. Mm -hmm.